we've done the same thing with housekeeping that we did with like physical health, which is like you are morally obligated to have this very clean, very organized, very aesthetically pleasing home, particularly if you are socialized as a woman. And if you do not do that, you deserve my shame and derision and criticism and all of that stuff. And so that's when I started talking about this idea that care tasks are morally neutral. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am super excited to be chatting with Casey Davis. If you don't know Casey, she is a licensed professional therapist, author, speaker, and the person behind the mental health platform Struggle Care. She is Domestic Blisters on TikTok. She is the author of How to Keep House While Drowning, a book that I read earlier this year and just cannot say enough good things about. I started thinking about this after I wrote the essay on organization as a hobby and how diet culture shows up for me in perfectionism around the house. And Casey is someone who is very, very good at helping us break down all of the assumptions we make about what our houses need to look like, about what care tasks need to look like, and offering ways to reframe all of that so that your space actually serves you instead of measuring up to some unsustainable ideal, which you know we are all about doing here. So here is Casey, but first a quick break. So since it's December and a lot of us are frantically working through holiday shopping lists, I have two great gift suggestions for you. Number one, give the gift of good email with a gift subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. There is a special gift subscription link in your episode description, so you can even schedule it to arrive on a particular day. And if you want to get very fancy about it, I have a very cute downloadable gift certificate PDF. So you can download that, print it out, and fill it in to make a really cute, in real life present, perfect stocking stuffer, whatever you want to do with it. It's great. Second pre-order fat talk. I know my book does not come out till April 25th, which is no help for holiday gifts in the winter, but pre-orders are really a gift to your future self who will be amazed at your thoughtfulness. This book also comes out just before Mother's Day, making it a lovely Mother's Day gift for any mom in your life who's trying to dismantle diet culture. So that link is also in your episode description. Whatever you do, thank you so much for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism. So I started my TikTok channel, gosh, I guess we're coming up on three years ago, and wow. I primarily use it to talk about how we can take care of ourselves when we're in a hard spot. So for some people, that's like a hard season of life. For other people, that is you know, a lifelong disability or maybe a bout with mental illness Maybe it's just being overwhelmed or being burnt out or any number of barriers that can make it difficult to care for ourselves. And I think that when we think about caring for ourselves, there's sort of like two main things out there mainstream. And one is like the self-care movement, which in my experience can get very privileged. You know, a lot of bubble baths and pedicures and Mm -hmm. talking about things that require the privilege of extra time and money. And then when we talk about care tasks, like doing the laundry and the dishes and things like that, if you want help with that, I often find that a lot of the resources out there are what I call like boot camp style motivation, Mm -hmm. where it's like, get up, figure it out, have some self-respect, like do it. And it's 
I don't find those very motivating. And so my content is the cross-section between mental health and and care tasks and how we can use self-compassion and accessibility and accommodations to sort of raise the quality of our life and make it a little bit easier to take care of ourselves. So I first got obsessed with your work when my friend Sarah Louise Peterson sent me a post you did about super pretty laundry rooms, and it says, this is a hobby. And it was such an epiphany for me, I have to tell you. I I don't know. I'd always sort of thought of that kind of content, the like pretty laundry room content, you know, it's supposed to be about organization. It's supposed to be about making your life easier. And I had this sense of like, well, it's intended to be helpful. And if it's making me feel bad, it's just because I'm not doing it right. And Mm -hmm. just like as I was making notes for our conversation and I wrote that down, I was like, oh, that's diet culture. That's perfectionism. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you came to realize that you know, so much of what we're told we should do or have to do in terms of domestic work is unrealistic and unsustainable and unhelpful. When people ask how I sort of fell into talking about this philosophy, I can point to several things in my life that sort of led to that moment. You know, I could talk about my history with addiction. I can talk about my history as a therapist. I can talk about my history in high control groups. But one of the main things was probably two or three years previous to starting my TikTok channel, I got into the anti-diet movement Mm. and opened my eyes to this idea that we might say, oh, it's about health, it's about health, it's about health, but we've also moralized, quote-unquote, being healthy to where if you're not striving to be the best human specimen that ever existed, that's a moral failing on your part. Mm -hmm. And that because that's a moral failing, you deserve derision and shame. And so I learned that from listening to anti-diet creators, from listening to fat liberation advocates, and it really sunk in and changed my relationship to food and my relationship to my body. And then fast forward two years, I found myself postpartum with a toddler in a new city where I didn't know anybody. My husband had just started a new job as a lawyer, and the pandemic shutdown happened. And we both were, all of us in the house, were just drowning in trying to keep up with the dishes and the laundry and the cleaning and the tidying and the bottles and the this and the that. And as I began to talk in my videos about like, hey, here's a way that I'm making cleaning a little bit easier— so many people started to speak up and say this similar sentiment of, I love seeing your house because it looks like my house and I've always felt so much shame over it. And that's how I kind of naturally pivoted into like, you know what? Like, dishes are also morally neutral. Yes. Like, we've done the same thing with housekeeping that we did with, like, physical health, which is, like, you are morally obligated to have this very clean, very organized, very aesthetically pleasing home, particularly if you are socialized as a woman. Mm -hmm. And if you do not do that, it is a moral failing of laziness and immaturity and irresponsibility, and therefore you deserve my shame and derision and criticism and all of that stuff. And so that's when I started talking about this idea that care tasks are morally neutral. They don't Mm -hmm. make you a good or bad person, right? And, like, it's not about 
whether you're doing it perfectly or whether you're doing it aesthetically pleasing or whether you're doing it in a way that you're like your father or sister-in-law likes, right? It's about like, does your home function for you? And if it does, it doesn't matter if it's aesthetically pleasing. And if it doesn't, then you deserve compassionate help and support to help get you to a functioning place. I'm thinking too, as you're saying this, how another way the house and health parallel each other is how much we have class signifiers bound up in both of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like this thin ideal is very much a white, you know, upper class, like et cetera, et cetera, ideal. And the house you're describing, the kind of Martha Stewart house, or is what I sort of grew up thinking of it as, is absolutely like a white upper middle class or wealthy ideal. The messy house, the house with dirty dishes in the sink, like all of that signifies class, right? In a way that we don't really like to talk about. And that's a really interesting piece of this. Yeah. And even, I mean, I've gotten my fair share of sort of like (laughs) critical hate comments online from people that, you know, think that it's a moral failing. But even so, I have noticed that I don't receive half as much sort of shame and derision from people as people who make similar videos whose homes are older Mm. or who are judged as not having as much money as me. Like Mm -hmm. my husband and I, this is our first house, but we also bought it like it's an inventory house. Like it was just built. Mm. So the inside of our house is nice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes into a lot of the reason why there are people that go, oh, Casey, that nice woman that helps people clean. Mm. And I think it would be very different if I was a fat woman, if I was a black woman, if I was a poor woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Then I think those other systemic, oppressive sort of biases and prejudices would obscure anyone from like actually learning because they'd be like, oh God, they'd have that, all those judgments about, well, if you're poor, then that's a moral failing and I'm allowed to be judgmental. Right, right, right. What we are performing for each other when we're trying to maintain the perfect home, when we're trying to maintain the perfect body, this is health as cultural capital or, you know, like this is a way of performing our value but it's making us complicit in this larger system that I think a lot of us don't want to be complicit in. For me, anyway, I don't want to reinforce that. (laughs) I don't want my house to be reinforcing all these toxic ideals and oppressive systems. So if that means leaving dishes in the sink, like, sure, I can radicalize that way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, and it's always funny to me that the comments that I get that are like, you're so lazy, why don't you just clean your house? Like those kind of comments. They're always on videos of Mm -hmm. me cleaning my house. Right? It's it's very, there's almost like that direct parallel to like when people are like harassing a fat woman at the gym mm-hmm. where it's, it's like, like, what I'm do you want? Doing what you said you wanted and you yes. still want to shame me. So obviously this isn't about my ability to meet up to this ideal. That always just, to me, pulls that curtain back where it's mm-hmm. like, it's not actually about health. It's not mm-hmm. actually about, you know, oh, your kids deserve ABC. Like most people don't give a shit about other people's kids. Right, right, right? right. And if you did, you'd be on board because right. a non-judgmental approach to finding ways to make your home more functional is absolutely the best thing for a parent who is struggling and not able to provide that for their child. I was thinking about 
why the laundry room was such an epiphany for me. And when I read your book, similarly, like I'm underlining every other page and having all these moments of like, oh my gosh, I've been making my life way too hard holding on to all these standards about what my house should be. And I realized, you know, one reason I think I've had a block on this for a long time is because I do have a lot of these privileges. I am a naturally tidy, organized person. This is something I've written about in my newsletter. It has certainly been like a problematic thing in my life, but it's also something that gives me like comfort and security to have clean countertops. And, you know, so there's a lot to unpack there. But I think in particular, there's probably a lot of us for whom this sort of, quote, perfect house ideal just feels like just a little bit out of reach. It's not like completely out of reach. And I think that's another diet culture parallel, right? Like, I think often the people who struggle the most to identify diet culture and anti-fat bias are naturally thin people for whom the, quote, perfect body feels very in reach if they Mm -hmm. just commit to the gym workout, if they just cut out whatever food group, you know, as opposed to those of us who, you know, the perfect body is just nowhere in our worldview. And so it makes more sense to like, well, I'm going to reject this whole system. I can see the whole system because it doesn't apply to me. Yeah, I definitely think there's that aspect of if you look at a system and realize I am disempowered in this system, I'm never going to win. It's easier to reject that system outright than it is for someone who's like, oh, I'm being disempowered in the system. But I'm so close to having power in this system. It's like one more trip to the container store. (laughs) If I just lost 10 pounds, then I could be at the top of this system, right? I think that there are a lot of people that read my book, that come to my content, and their main issue, they would say, is I have trouble starting, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I don't have the skills. I feel you know, sensory overload at dealing with it. I'm struggling with motivation, with task initiation, and therefore everything's kind of building up and becoming overwhelming. And then the flip side of that is I have just as many people that say, you know, I don't have any problem starting. I'm a naturally tidy person. I actually Mm -hmm. have trouble stopping. Yes. Oh, that's me. I'm raising my hand. I have trouble (laughs) sitting down and resting if not everything is not done or put perfectly in its place. And like you said, if it's, oh, but it's almost perfect. Yeah. So if I just put a little more effort. And that would make sense if you were creating a painting or a craft that had an end point. But Mm -hmm. care tasks are cyclical. They're always moving. And so if you have that mindset that you're not allowed to rest, you're not allowed to recreate, you're not allowed to blow something off until everything is done, Mm -hmm. you're going to exhaust yourself because nothing's ever done. You know, as soon as it was safe to do so, I hired a cleaning service. Yeah. Right. Like, come in once a month, do a deep clean, help me out. And one of the interesting observations I had about myself is that in the hours right after that cleaning are my most anxious hours, my most anal retentive hours, my (sighs) most like on guard, snapping at my family hours. Because there's this like, okay, it's done. Let me just have it for a couple of hours. And so (laughs) it's like the first juice that spills, I blow my top, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that really represents that even in me, like there's this idea that like we're supposed to get everything to the done stage and just hold it there. Yes, yes. I have the exact same experience when my wonderful cleaning person comes and I dread my children coming home from school later that day because I just want it. And it, 
And I guess what I struggle with is like, it also is like calming to me, right? Like a clean house calms me down. I am someone who is stressed out by a lot of clutter. I grew up in houses that were like pretty cluttery. And I think, you know, it's a response to it in some ways. So I'm like, what if this is helpful? And what if this is, I'm buying into this really unhelpful ideal? Where do you find that line if you're like, this does meet a need of mine, but it's also part of this larger system I don't want to be a part of, and it's making my life hard? I mean, there's definitely times when I've not wanted to have friends come over because I'm thinking I can't get the house together in time for them to come over, and then I'm shortchanging myself of that experience. And like, I don't mean to make you do therapy on me. But no, no. So. I love questions like this. I think it's a perfect question because I think that when we think of that question, we feel very either or. So. Mm-hmm. Is it wrong that I want to put everything in its place or is it valid that I could put everything in its place? And and I think it's more like let's try to bring in both sides. So let's try to close the gap on either end. So on the one hand, there are some ways in which your childhood has created neural pathways between the experience of clutter and perhaps the experience of either unsafety or chaos or feeling out of control or maybe feeling not cared for or, you know, fill in the blank. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know the situation enough to say what it might actually be. Sure, sure. And that association has less to do with the inherent clutter. Mm-hmm. and more to do with the emotional context of that clutter. Now, there's definitely situations that are hoarding-level situations where it's like, it doesn't matter how happy the family is, this is unfunctional and traumatizing. Right. But for a lot of people, you'll find that someone will say, my house was really cluttered, but we were a chaotic, artistic, loving, close-knit family that flew by the seat of our pants, and you know, my mom never cleaned a dish right in her life, but God, she was at every soccer game, right? And you hear this mm-hmm. very different emotional context than someone that says, you know, my house is really cluttered, and you know, sometimes it's really severe, like, and my mom wouldn't get out of bed, mm-hmm. and my dad wouldn't help around the house. And so there's this emotional context. And so I think unpacking that emotional context yeah. and sort of diving into what that is helpful. I think that creating some self-affirmations for yourself in your own home about, you know, the functionality of your home is helpful. And I don't think this is one of those things where anybody should be saying, just spiritualize your way out of it. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it's so, so let's work on those things, not because there is a moral obligation for you to heal these wounds, but Mm -hmm. because you'll be happier in your space if you can unpack and roll through and process out some of those stressors. But also, let's look at your physical environment and let's see how that environment can serve you without making you serve it. So I don't want you running around thinking, I can't sit down. I can't, you know, I'm really having a ton of stress. I am i can't ever let my friends come over because that's st- distressing for you. Totally. So we're not looking at, is it healthy or unhealthy because you have to be healthy. We're looking at what's your level of distress? Where's the distress coming from? And what things can we do to lower your distress? Some of those things will be the emotional work around it. Mm-hmm. But some of those things will be the physical accommodation. So some of those things will be Okay, so maybe you're someone who needs a lot of closed storage mm-hmm. in your life, mm-hmm. right? I am that person. If you decide you need more storage, you are not someone who should go out and get a bookshelf. Mm-hmm. You are someone who should go out and get an armoire or a closing cabinet or something that closes because then you will be able to get your space into that sort of serene zen space quicker 
mm-hmm. without exhausting yourself and without having to be perfect. Because it doesn't have to be perfect on the inside of the cabinet. And if you're privileged enough to have, like, the extra bedroom, maybe right, that's right. just the doom room. Like, that's right. the room that you let not be, you know. <laughs> right, right. Or maybe there's one part of your house that you go, this is my spot. This is my room, or this is my chair, or this is my corner, and it's perfect, and it's going to be perfect, and I will anal out on it all day long. Um, That's probably a very weird way to put that, but (laughs) (laughs) you will allow yourself to be anal retentive about it, and you'll tell yourself and your kids to kick rocks if they come near it, and you you allow yourself to have that in that space. So I think it's both, right? Like I think, yeah, unpack it, great. One of the things that I've been thinking about, my husband and I actually just purchased a new home. And it's a little bit bigger than the home mm-hmm. we're in now because our kids, when we moved into this home, I was pregnant and had a toddler and you know, they mm-hmm. had a playpen. And now they're right. like running through the halls. And you realize how much space children take up. Yes. It's a lot. Yeah. So interestingly enough, as I'm thinking about moving into this bigger house, my immediate thought was before I do this, I have to declutter. I have to downsize my stuff. I have to have less stuff. And that hmm. seems counterintuitive to a lot of people because they think, well, no, you're getting more space. You, you're, you'll finally have space. But for me, I understand that if I have so many things in a bigger space, mm-hmm. it will be harder for me to feel like I can keep it functional. It will take much more time to keep it functional. It yeah, will that take, makes sense. Right? Yeah. And so that's the way I'm thinking about it because it is going to be more functional in a lot of ways for our kids to be able to run around, for us to be able to have, you know, my mother-in-law come without making her sleep in the kids' room. And at the same time going, this is also going to present some challenges for me because I'm not a naturally tidy person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I it's can more clean to keep my up whole. With. Yeah, it's way more to keep up with. And so mm-hmm. how can I get ahead of that? And one of those ways would be not having as much stuff. We actually did something similar when we moved from our like first smaller home to a bigger home. We hired a dumpster before we left that smaller home. And our house has a really big, like the entire footprint of the house is an unfinished basement. So there is this place where I can always dump, right, when I need to like just get the clutter out of the way. I can always just throw it down to the basement. But then the basement starts to stress me out a little bit because it gets out of control. And I just realized like having this big place to dump everything is if if there's too much stuff is not going to solve this yeah. problem. Yeah, I completely get that. And maybe if it was a smaller area, it would be more functional because you would still have a place to go, okay, I'm just going to put it over here. Mm-hmm. But if a smaller area gets kind of stuffed and full and you go, ooh, it's time to clear this out, you know, looking at a closet and going time to clear this out is a lot less overwhelming than looking at a huge basement, the entire oh, you know, yeah. footprint of your Yeah, we like, can tackle it in like stages at a time, but it's painting the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever, you know, like we get one corner cleaned out, we finally get to the end and that corner is a disaster and we just keep rotating and it's like, why? But here's the thing I would also say, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm not saying like change it if you want to change it, but sometimes... The distress we feel about our house isn't about that's not functional for me. It's about it shouldn't be this way. Yes. Right? So you, if you're wanting this basement should be done. Well, but if that works for you, though, working in that little circle where you're always creating a little more space when you need it and you're always constant, like that might be a care cycle mm-hmm. that is functioning just fine. And maybe it's not, but I'm just saying, like, it actually is fine. Like, if you're actually getting rid of things, if you're 
organizing at a quick enough rate to free yourself up space to be able to dump something there when you feel overwhelmed, that is a system that could work fine for you. Does that make sense? Yes. It's just making me realize there's no gold star for an organized basement. Like, when am I expecting to get the prize for that? (laughs) Yeah, like like, maybe that's the function of your basement is that workspace to process through your stuff in a place where at the end of the day, you can still shut the door and sit on your couch and enjoy a space that is clean and tidy and put together. Well, you've just solved a huge issue in my life, so that's amazing. We say all the time, we bought our house in 2016, and had we known the pandemic was coming, like, one thing we did really right was we bought a house that had office space above the garage because we both work from home and we knew we needed that space. But one thing we did really wrong was bought an open concept downstairs. And during the pandemic, I was like, I can never escape them. I can never escape the children. I can never escape the mess. If I'm in the kitchen, I can see all the way to the other end of the house. There was no way to close a door on any messes. I mean, we're never moving. We love our house. But one thing we did was like part of the unfinished basement is now a kid playroom area, even though it's an unfinished basement, just because I was like, some of this stuff cannot be in the main living space for my peace of mind. And I just want to underscore the privilege that I'm talking about a large house with a basement. Like I realize not everyone has this much space to work with, but it's just interesting realizing how much, you know, picking the house initially was on some level buying into a larger aesthetic, right? These beautiful open concept houses were very trendy. And I think that started to shift in a lot of ways because of the pandemic and how we actually live in our space. But I do think it brings up a concept that's applicable to anyone, which is that, you know, rooms don't have rules. We actually have, because of the layout of our house, what they did was they took the floor plan and they put it on these like zero lot line, almost like townhomes. So there's three stories, but each story is like actually kind of small. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have good square footage, but the way that it's kind of chopped up and put on top of each other means that, like, if me and my husband and both of our kids are downstairs in the living area, we kind of feel like we're on top of each other, Mm -hmm. especially a two and a four year old that are running around like crazy, spreading their toys everywhere. Yeah. And one of the things that we did right when we moved in was like the corner that was supposed to be the dining room, we just didn't put a dining room in. Like, we don't own a dining room table. Mm -hmm. We turn that into a play corner. Yeah. So that, you know, we could still see our kids while we were cooking dinner. Our kids had a place to go where we knew where they were. So, like, that's an example of, okay, it's not some separate place, but do you need a dining room table? My husband and I eat in front of the TV. The dining room table would just collect stuff. For the two times a year, you would want to host a big dinner or whatever. Exactly. Versus the every single day my kids need a functional space to play. Totally. The other idea is, you know, if you have a space where you don't have any extra bedrooms, but maybe you have two kids and they each have a bedroom— is for some people, they have found, wait, if my kids are just sleeping in their bedrooms and they're not opposed to the idea of sharing a room, maybe my kids would rather have a shared living space that is only a bed and a dresser, no toys in there. In fact, almost nothing in there to even make it messy. So it's not an extra room to clean. That's just where we go to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And then this other bedroom is a play space. Right. Or is a a gross motor movement space. I tried to sell my kids on that and they're four years apart and the age difference is just big enough that they were really into it when they were like three and seven. And we tried doing some sleepovers for a while to test out the idea. And then the older one was like, yeah, no, I don't actually want her in my room. So that idea is on the back burner for now. But I do think it's a great concept, especially if you have kids close in age. Same with closets. You know, we have a... um, 
family yes, closet. Your family closet is genius. Genius. All of my family have their clothes in one closet. And some of that's the layout. My primary walk-in closet opens to the laundry room. And so it's really convenient right. to take laundry out, take three steps, put all of it away. My kids still need assistance dressing. So this makes sense for us in this period of time. And what happened when we moved into a family closet was all of a sudden we had two whole closets that were completely empty now. Oh, that's amazing. And so then we could think about, well, now I could use these closets for something else. Oh, that's really, really smart. If it's close to the laundry, why would you ever want the clothes to be anywhere else in your house? So smart. My downstairs coat closet was stuffed to the brim with coats we never wore and like stuff that we kind of put in there. And what I realized one day is that it's not that I want to get rid of this stuff, but like this is not stuff I'm accessing every day. Mm -hmm. And this little coat closet is one of the only downstairs storage spaces that I have. Mm -hmm. So I really need to use it for the things that I need access to every day because there's nowhere to put those things. And the other part of that is like I live in Houston, Texas. (laughs) Heavy coats are not. Yeah. Right. Like we don't need coats. We need maybe a sweater and a coat two months out of the year. Right. And so I try never to say, like, here's what everyone should do, but instead talk about having the creativity to think about who you are in the context of your home and your own needs and your own functioning and going, okay, maybe a person who only has one downstairs closet in Houston, Texas, like, doesn't need to be keeping it shoved full of winter coats all year long. Like, it was totally sufficient to put hooks on the back of that door, hang all of our one little coat that we need Mm -hmm. and then put shelving in it. And now I finally have downstairs storage to put things away so that they aren't sitting out. I want to talk just a little bit more about the appearances piece of this, because again, that's the piece that I've realized I have the work to do. And that's also where it intersects so much with diet culture. Is it worth like challenging ourselves if the aesthetic piece has felt really important do I leave the dirty laundry out the next time friends come over for dinner? Like, do you sort of challenge yourself to break some of those rules and see that you can survive it? Or is there another more helpful way to think about this? I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with that. If, you know, you want to do some exposure therapy, but I don't think you have to. (laughs) I think what's interesting to me is that when people will say, you know, I don't want to sit down because having a perfectly clean house is relaxing to me. Mm. And I've always thought that that was interesting because, I mean, yeah, I also find a perfectly clean house relaxing, but like the beach is relaxing. Right. I experience the beach as relaxing, but I don't experience not being at the beach as being anxiety producing. That's a helpful distinction. So like, obviously, when I walk into a showroom or for that like one hour when everything's perfectly in its place or when I look at magazines of homes, like I feel that visceral response of, oh, wow, how beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay to feel that. I think, though, if that is one of your only tools for coping with anxiety or one of your only tools for release, or if you're trying to make that one particular tool carry more weight in your life than it's capable of carrying, then I would just say that you're somebody that deserves to have more coping skills than having to clean. I actually do love a well-put-together, aesthetically pleasing, almost minimalist-looking space, 
but I also have two kids. And I think for me, the freedom comes in going, yes, it's relaxing to have something aesthetically pleasing, but that's not a value of mine that ranks higher than being able to function in my space. Mm -hmm. It's not a value of mine that ranks higher than being able to spend time with my kids. Mm -hmm. It's not a value of mine that ranks higher than being able to spend every single night on the couch with my husband watching some silly show that we like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the freedom to say, it's okay to value these things. But if you find yourself feeling morally obligated to value them over other things in your life or to the detriment of your own health and well-being, you deserve to rearrange some things, right? Yeah, and to value rest as much as you value value other things. Yeah, to value other things. It's wonderful to have a beautiful home, and I like to have a beautiful home. My home does not always look beautiful, and maybe one day I will have— a different season of life where I have more time and energy to put into that particular hobby or Mm -hmm. stress release activity. But I can't afford to put that at the top of my list right now because other more important things in my life would suffer. Like when I'm having that like anxiety of, oh, we can't have people over the house as a mess. It's like, wait, but actually time with our friends is a value of mine. I want Mm -hmm. that. I love when we have friends over and our kids get to play with their kids that's something that I want to cultivate. So if that means letting the house go so we can do it, because the alternative of making myself stressed out about the house in order to do that, like that makes the whole experience so tense and weird for everybody. And I think there are some parallels to diet culture there, especially in like, you know, I have some health stuff. Like I found out recently that I have fatty liver Mm -hmm. and there were a couple of things in my labs that were like, almost like a high normal, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I met with a dietitian and I was like, listen, I I need to make some changes so that I can address some of these things. And it was very, I I almost like feel my body go into like fight or flight when I Mm -hmm. talk about making food changes just because of all of the unpacking that takes. But I purposely met with a dietitian who was also a, a licensed clinical counselor. And at one point in going through that, she said, I want you to also recognize you do not have to make any of these changes right now. This doesn't have to be a priority right now. Like nothing that you're looking at or dealing with is something that if you don't do it this year, like you're going to have some major health consequence. That's so freeing. That's so freeing. Would it be great for you to prioritize eating this over that because of the effect that it might have on your cholesterol or your fatty liver? Yeah. But also, like, you're allowed to look at the other things going on in your life this year and make the call on whether you're capable of integrating that change into your life while still maintaining a quality of life. Mm. Because if you're also dealing with your postpartum depression, you know, transitioning your children into a new school, writing a book— dealing with your mental health, you are not morally obligated to put this on the list. And I think that that is a very similar parallel. Absolutely. I just wrote a piece for the newsletter about seasonal exercise and how we have such an all-or-nothing mindset about exercise that comes entirely from diet culture. It's entirely bound up in equating exercise with weight management, when the reality is for so many of us, there are weeks, months, years where exercise cannot and should not be the priority. We need to give ourselves permission to move through periods where it fits and periods where it doesn't fit. And 
odds are you'll exercise more consistently in the long term if you give yourself that permission than if you think of it as something you have to do perfectly or not at all. So we wrap up the podcast every week with my recommendation segment, Butter for Your Burnt Toast, where we each recommend something we're loving. I would love to know, Casey, what are you loving right now? Okay. So I recently, I um, I don't know if this is a part of my ADHD or what, but I get really fixated on like one certain meal and just like eat it over and over and over. And recently I got fixated on tuna bowls and like poke bowls. Oh, and then God, I, I was like, bowls. my bank account was screaming at me about it. So then I tried <laughs> making them at home and I realized that my grocery store sells like frozen ahi tuna fillets. And so I started buying those. And so I started making that at home. Like I just sear it two minutes on both sides, add it to some rice and avocado, put some like ponzu and soy sauce on it. And to me, that's like heaven. Oh my God, so good. There were a couple of times where I would dethaw because you have to dethaw it for like 24 hours. And that's like a big deal for me to tell you what I want to eat in 24 hours. But yeah, so I dethaw it. And there was like several times where I would do that and then it would come time to make myself dinner and I would be really exhausted. My kids have been really sick lately. We've got some other stuff going on and I would just be like, I don't have it. I don't have it in me to spend the 15 minutes cooking rice that I like need to. Mm hmm. And so then I would end up having to throw the tuna filet away because— Oh, yeah, that hurts. That's what—yeah, it, it yeah. hurts. But it's one of those things where it's like, I don't—I probably shouldn't—it's like it's raw tuna. This one yeah, I yeah. like over— No, you can't roll the dice, but yeah. it's just like you spent money on it. It's, it hurts yeah. a little to have to throw it out. And I didn't want to keep doing that, right? Like, I didn't want to keep wasting it. And then I was at the grocery store the other day, and I often buy those, like, Uncle Ben's rice packs for, like— dirty rice or Spanish mm -hmm. rice or whatever. And then I saw that they had just like plain white rice. <gasps> Perfect. And I just had this like gentle moment with myself where I was like, Casey, just get a few. Yeah. Just get a few for like those moments, you know, those nights when this was the meal that you planned, but all of a sudden you don't have it in you to cook the rice, the long, you know, get the pot out, put the water out, put the whatever. And I did that for myself. And it was just such a kind moment of self-care because within the week, I had that exact thing happen. Yep. And it was like, okay, thank God I only have to put a bag into the microwave for 90 seconds. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love shortcut anything that makes getting dinner easier. I've recently gotten super into salad kits for the same reason. I was like, wait, the dressing comes in a little packet in the bag. <laughs> Where has this been all my life? <laughs> yes. All I have to do is open packets and dump things. It's so great. I love it so much. Well, my butter, well, now I just gave salad kits as one butter, but my, the butter I was planning to talk about actually ties into what we were talking about before in terms of like needing to create a space for yourself in your house that's like your own. So I am very privileged to have this lovely office above our garage. And for a long time, I only went in it when I was working because I have been a work-from-home person since the early 2000s, and I learned early on that, like, for my mental health with my work, I needed to, like, not have my work where I slept or where I relaxed. You know, like, I couldn't combine the two, which was challenging when we lived in, like, studio apartments in New York City. But anyway, um, but now that I am a parent and a work-from-home person, <laughs> I need separation from my kids even more. So I now have a secret iPad in my office where oh. I, I come up. My kids don't know about this iPad. Well, they've seen it, but, like, they don't care. It's not their iPad. I bought one of the refurbished, like, 
many generations past iPads, but it can stream things. That's got my Netflix on it. And I have a little corner up here with my secret iPad and my jigsaw puzzles. And I come up here for like an Stunning. hour and do Stunning. a puzzle. I love it so much. I love a puzzle. Can I just tell oh, you that God. one of the things I'm excited about about our new house is that I am going to do something similar, like have a home office, mm -hmm. and I'm going to have a puzzle. I love a puzzle, and I haven't really been able to do them since I had kids because— They're not toddler compatible at all. Not only do I have kids, but I have two cats, and mm -hmm. I just didn't have the time, and there wasn't like a safe surface that I could do it on. So I'm going to butter my toast with that soon. I really recommend if you can fit a puzzle corner into your home office because I love puzzles, and I was doing them down in our living room— but then the clutter of the puzzle would trigger my clutter stuff. I mean, obviously, there's more I can unpack there where I didn't want the puzzle left out, but I don't mind having it out in my office because then when I'm trying to, like, think through something I'm writing, let me go, like, do the puzzle for a few minutes and, you Ooh, know, it, like, that. gives my brain a break. So, yeah, big fan of the secret puzzle slash iPad corner <laughs> in your house. Casey, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Just tell listeners where they can follow you and how we can support your work. So you can find me on TikTok. That's kind of my main channel at Domestic Blisters. I do have an Instagram at Struggle Care. My website is strugglecare.com. And from there, you can kind of get to everything that I do. You can buy my book. You can listen to the podcast. My podcast is called Struggle Care. You can awesome. download some free things. You can purchase some downloads. You can read some free resources you can watch my TEDx talk. Like, you can do everything from my website. So feel free to head over there, strugglecare.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. Maybe a friend you want to invite over to see your dirty laundry. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It is just $5 a month or 50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks. You keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.